Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Jeremy Almond. He's the CEO at Paystand. Jeremy, welcome to the show. What's up, Kevin, man? It's great to be on the show and talk to you and the listeners. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. You have done a tremendous amount of stuff, but maybe before we dive into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, man. Um, so we'll talk a lot about tech, I think, but I'm the most unlikely person I feel like to have gotten in tech. Okay. Um, so my background is um, my, my mother's side of the family originally came over from Mexico right before I was born. She okay. married this blue collar uh, construction worker who had never been to college, never been to high school. So um, wow. I think my destiny was probably to go work in the fields, to be honest. Okay. Um, sometimes fate intervenes. And so uh, I grew up kind of all over the place, but the the place I spent the most time is this urban industrial town called Stockton. It's not a high-tech center. It's in the middle of agriculture zone in California. Um, you know, and so just by a stroke of luck, uh, my life changed by getting involved in technology. Um, but otherwise, you know, I might be working in a factory or in a farm uh, right now, not talking to you. Okay, so how did you get involved in tech? And let's talk about you your education because you, you went to university and I'm curious to know what you took and why. Yeah. Um, so, so I was, you know, I think like, you know, anybody who's um, got high ambitions, I was a bit of a troublemaker as a kid. And so um, uh, a couple teachers took kindly on me and put me in these programs that um, kept me a little bit more busy. And so um, back in the nineties, it was less common, but I learned to program, which, you know, now that's common, but it wasn't so much then. Um, right. And I was very young when that happened. And so because of that, um, I got involved in hacking and just kind of like a new world opened up for me. And um, so I got scholarship to go to computer science program. Um, and really what changed my life was I was looking at the time, this was in the late 90s, dot com was a, kind of going crazy. And um, and so I wanted to work in tech and I had some options. I was looking at going either the Cal or Stanford. Um, and I was checking out a backup school of mine, which was the University of California, Santa Barbara, to go study engineering. And it's an okay school. It's not Stanford. It's not Cal. Um, but one thing it had different was it had this uh, beach with a surf spot. And um, if you grow wow. up in the ghetto, a beach with a surf spot sounds pretty cool. So I tried to talk my uh, folks into going there versus a you know Stanford or something. And they were like, "You're crazy. Um, you're the first kid to go to college. Um, you know, you're gonna should go work in Silicon Valley." And um, uh, so what I did to combat that conversation was I said, Hey, if I can get a job as an intern at a tech company, um, and go work and surf and, um, do all of these things, boy, wouldn't that be cool. And so, um, I had kind of hustled my way into the startup down in Santa Barbara, um, as a way to be able to go to this, uh, kind of beach college. And, um, I worked full time at okay, the start. Sorry, sorry to cut you off, but how did you get that job? Hmm. 
I, I basically cold called. So there was in Santa Barbara at the time, it's still a small beach town. Um, there's almost no tech. Now, the good okay. thing about that was because there was no tech um, and this was like yellow pages days, you could kind of figure out like the three or four like tech companies. Right. And um, so I figured if I had a chance um, to, to go work at a tech company and go live at the beach, I was going to do it. Um, and so I just basically cold called them, uh, figured out who worked where, um, and just kind of hustled my way in. And, and what I got, when I got the interview, I said, look, I'm a 16 year old kid. I know next to nothing. I'm about to start engineering school, um, but here's the deal. I will go and I will sweep your floors. I'll go run wires. I'll do whatever it is that happens at these startups that nobody else wants to do. Um, and so they took a chance mm -hmm. on me and, um, it was a pretty small startup at the time. Um, and my journey into tech ends up being that while I went to engineering school for four years, at the same time, I worked full time at the startup and the startup grew phenomenally, um, ultimately got acquired. Um, the acquiring wow. company went public, um, you know, still public on the NASDAQ today. So it was a, um, amazing experience to see, you know, from ground floor to sort of global world changing company, you know, all while I was, you know, 16 to 20 and also hustling at school. So, um, incredible experience for me. So that's amazing. Okay. So walk us through getting out of school, um, getting your MBA and, and your career, maybe just some highlights along the way. Cause you, like I said earlier, you, you've done a ton of stuff. Yeah, so um, I guess this is a somewhat into the origin story of Paystan, which is my current gig. But um, so t for for the first ten years after that startup, it basically spent um, in enterprise tech. So that startup okay. was a hardware tech company. We built the equipment um, that ultimately helped invent the iPod and the iPhone, and That's you cool. know made computers the size of um, you know the palm of your hand. Um, and so what I realized was I was spending a lot of time in enterprise. Um, and so this enabling sort of software enabling infrastructure that's unsexy, but becomes the core of our economy was very, very interesting to me. Sure. Um, anyway, so I, I'd done that for a fair bit of time, um, and was really enjoying it. It took me out to New York. Um, I got to see what a public companies look like. I got to consult for a bunch of sort of big financial service companies and a big, um, ERP systems and e-commerce systems, all which was, you know, sort of blowing up in the early 2000s. Anyways, fast forward to uh, 2008, and um, I'm living out in New York at the time, and um, I get this call that uh, you never want to get. Um, life had been very good to me. Like I said, um, uh, my world has sort of shifted. But um, meanwhile, go back to my origin story, which is where, how my parents sort of were founded. And um, I think like any parents that are just good, hardworking, salt of the earth, you know, um, folks, they have two American dreams. One of them is, you know, to see their kid go off to do a little better than themselves and get education and all of these sorts of things. Um, and the second is to buy, you know, a home. And so for my parents, that was a, you know, 20 year labor um, to buy an 800 square foot home. You know, it was the culmination of their American dream. They worked super hard to get it. And it was, you know, one bedroom and a in a closet in the middle of, you know, not a great area, but, you know, they just loved it. You know, um, it was ownership and it was a chance for them to sort of be upwardly mobile. Anyways, they live in it for a bunch of years um, until 2008. 2008, my um, parents basically have some tragedy in the family. Um, uh, one of the family members passes away. It causes. Um, to hear that. Yeah. And it caused, you know, this the safety net problem because people who live sort of paycheck by paycheck, they don't have you know, long-term right. safety. 
And the culmination of this was um, my, my family was like one of the many millions of Americans who ended up losing um, their home during the financial crisis to wow. really no fault of their own. Um, and um, for me, what happened was a sort of, I'd almost call it like holy anger. I remember walking down Wall Street um, at the time because I was there. And um, there's this thing called Occupy Wall Street, which were, yeah, I remember that. you know, a bunch of people were just frustrated at the system that, um, you know, Wall Street got bailed out, Main Street didn't. Um, it's the tale that's too old to tell, which is, you know, the haves and the have nots and the have nots get treated unfairly. And so I just remember seeing that and thinking, you know, my parents were affected. A lot of people's lives were affected. I think at that time, we all felt like the financial system could be fundamentally better. Um, and so I had this moment where I thought, boy, I could pick up one of these signs and throw rocks at the banks, which you know a lot of people were doing at the time. Or I could do, which I was so lucky for the last 10 years to do, which is in tech, we get to have this amazing privilege, which is to imagine the world not as it is, but as it could be, and then go sure. to make that happen. Um, and so out of these kind of riots that were going on in Wall Street, I decided, um, you know, the best thing for me to do is I was at a point in my life where I could take a little bit of time off. And so I went back to grad school um, and I studied, you know, complex financial systems. And effectively, my master's thesis was on why banks were too big to fail. Um, and, you know, what you see in there is, is just a systemic problem in how the financial system is set up in, in sort of this very deeply unfair way. Um, so um, out of that grad research become this sort of larger thesis on, you know, how can we create change in financial systems that ultimately create change in our economy and our society. Um, and so fast forward down the road, and that's partly what started Paystam. Okay, so how did you come up with the idea then for Paystand? What is it today? And then I, I guess what made you ultimately decide that you need to be the one building this? Yeah, yeah. I think when you start a company, you know, building companies is very difficult. It's very rewarding, but it's very difficult. And if you're going to do something really with impact, you got to want to work on it for a long time. And, and, and I mean, decades. And so it's got to be this thing that meets where your professional skills and your personal passions lie. So you'll run through walls. Right. And um, and so if you think about it, for me, that first 10 years of working in, you know, what I'd call enterprise software, sort of back end enabling tech, um was formative and then this experience to me was also formative and so out of that was a sort of thesis that boy um the the 2008 financial crisis was actually a commercial banking crisis not a consumer banking crisis um you know sort of the back-end banks that had failed and so a lot of people were doing all this innovation you know today in fintech and consumer banking and consumer financial services but very few were actually touching the back-end stuff that the banks are made of um and so where i felt i was sort of uniquely called and enabled to do was to go how can we democratize and ultimately decentralize uh, the commercial side of the financial system which is really what the foundation of our economy is um and so out of that was born this notion of pay stand which um pay stands really goal is to change and transform um uh, B2B enterprise and commercial financial services to make them more fair and ultimately more democratic and better for our economy. What we do today, our core business is we are a B2B payment network. 
Um, so okay. you can sort of the simple way to think of us is you can imagine what um, Venmo does between consumers making, you know, sort of money movement, you know, in the 21st century, delightful, magic, easy, um, and kind of rethink how money is done. Money is just software. Uh, we do the same for complicated commercial transactions between large companies, large enterprises, large systems, um, where massive amounts of money move, but they move in these old school ways where power accumulates. And so what we do is, is basically unlock that money. Money becomes software. Um, and when we do, we create this sort of radically new kind of business. So um, we're best known today as the you know, largest B2B blockchain um, enabled technology company in the world. That's um, kind of a new decentralized technology that's changing how financial services work. Um, and then we also radically change the business model of, of payments. Problem with a lot of payments today is um, the business model of banks and payments in general are fee-based. So every time money moves and exchanges hands, uh, some bank or some kind of financial system like Visa and MasterCard, they have their hand in the cookie jar. They right. take some toll charge. Um, and this ends up being punitive to the companies and ultimately to society. And so um, what we do is we change that around and we say, instead of taking fees altogether, we're, we're basically going to create a free network anybody can use. Um, and then we're just going to create a business that basically creates great software that helps the companies get their money better, cheaper, faster, and more efficiently. Um, and so that helps the business become com more competitive, um, which is who the customer we serve, but it ultimately creates the financial system to be more open and fair, um, which is really what our mission is about. Okay. So let's unpack that a bit. So how do you, how do you monetize the platform on your end then? Yeah. So, so if you think the a, a core thesis is money is now software, um, right. which is this interesting idea, you know, how does software get charged in the regular world? Um, most companies pay for it through something called SaaS, software as a service. And what that does is it incentivizes uh, companies basically to build better software, right? So if, if I build better software, if I'm Salesforce or I'm Oracle, um, you know, the the businesses that i serve the better the software i am the more it helps their business the more they're going to pay and so in our case we do the same thing so instead of charging a fee and instead of sort of being punitive to a company's success what we do is just say hey we charge a flat amount which is just for us to create great software and the better software we create the more value it creates for you as a company um, and that flat fee you know allows the company to scale um, without sort of charging them, you know, the more they scale, the more more they're basically going to get, um, uh, you know, sort of punitively hit. Um, and so what that ends up being for the customer is a bunch of bottom line savings, because, you know, today, if the customer was not using us and using standard, I don't know, Visa or MasterCard or federal system, they might be spending millions and millions of dollars in fees just to collect their revenue. Um, sure. And so instead, what we do is we give them all that money back. And so for them, that means that they can reinvest that into you know hiring more people helping the company be more successful um you know and we think that that's actually great for the bottom line of the economy um and so we we like to think we make companies more competitive and ultimately more successful by doing the this different business model fascinating okay so what size of a company is ideal to use paystand i guess is probably a good place to start yeah, so our core product um, is on what we call the receivable side, which is to help companies collect their money. 
Okay. Um, so all of the billing and collection and money movement process, um, those are generally mid-size and enterprise companies. So think, you know, at the low end, you might be 100 employees up to 10,000 employees. Um, and, and the reason okay. why is because the more money you're collecting, right, it becomes incumbent. If you can get your money faster, um, you know, time is money. If you can kind of automate the process, which is one of the things we do, um, you know, that means a company's more efficient. And as a company scales, that becomes more important. And then those fees really start stacking up. So, so Visa and MasterCard generally charge 3% um, basically right. on all their tol on all their fees. Now, if, if you're just a small coffee shop and you're charging $5 for a coffee, which is kind of one of my great loves, um, you know, that's 3% on the $5 is maybe a fair value exchange. It's 15 cents, right? right. Um, 3% on a hundred thousand dollar invoice with a company you know an enterprise company you've worked with for a decade um that's doing hundreds of millions of dollars that's a big problem yeah. um and so so the problem just magnifies the larger the company gets so um the short version is mid to large enterprise is our core business we've also just re opened up a new product though which i'm excited about which is a a new digital corporate spend card this also runs on the blockchain it gives crypto and Bitcoin rewards, which is a really cool concept we can talk about in a minute. Um, sure. and, and what we're finding there is, is companies of all sizes are using that. Um, so, so that's used from everything from Fortune 500 companies to, you know, companies with 10, 10 employees. Okay, very cool. So dive into this new product because I'm, I'm curious to learn more about this as well. Yeah, so... Um, one of the things we noticed is even though our core business was on the you know receiving side, um, you know how did you how do you innovate on um, you know expenses and bills that every company pays? And so um, this corporate expense card we call it the DeFi card. What it does is is three kind of main things that are different. Um, you know the first one is uh, when the card gets spent on any company in our network um, with a customer that's on the other side um, instead of going through visa or mastercard it goes through our network on the blockchain and there's no fees for anybody yeah so that's so amazing. that's a really powerful concept that it that's it huge yeah and so so again that's putting visa and mastercard in general they're they're roughly a trillion dollars between the two of them in market cap that's a trillion dollars wow. of basically lost money in our economy so if we can put that back by running it over you know our system, our decentralized system, that's great. So that's one cool thing. The second thing it does is because it uses blockchain, it's um, does sort of smart control. So it's got all this cool, you know, expense management and control stuff that um, uh, you know companies would expect, so that they can have all their employees use it and they can um, you know determine how it gets used and what it gets used on. So it's this sort of next gen topic. Um, and then the third one, which I guess is what we're probably most known for with this new product, um, you know, a lot of news covered this, is the reward points um, are, are based natively in Bitcoin. And why that's interesting or important is, you know, when I have a corporate card, let's say it's an American Express card and I get my points, uh, the problem is those points are kind of very opaque. So, you know, you can't just easily exchange them for, I don't know, my United Airlines points or my Starbucks points or whatever. They're kind of locked in for one. Um, and then they're inflationary, meaning over time, those points become less usable. Um, and so they're kind of this thing that they're supposed to be a benefit, um, but they're really just a lock-in. And so in our case, 
what we do is, is the card is spent in just regular dollars. It operates just like a normal credit card, um, a corporate card, but your points come back in this open decentralized and deflationary system where your points actually increase in value. Um, and then they can be used anywhere because you know what we see in, in the crypto side of the world is, is things like Bitcoin can be exchanged for everything from travel to rewards. Um, you know, it's not a closed garden, it's an open garden. Um, and it's part of the way we think financial services will um, sort of evolve. And so it's an easy way at the end of the day for a corporation to get involved in dip their toe into these next gen financial products like crypto, um, but just operate like they normally would as a business. So they're just spending like they normally would, saving on all those fees, having really awesome next gen expense management capabilities. Um, and then they get they get to just exchange and, and, and learn about crypto um, for effectively free. Fascinating. Okay. So how does, well, I guess, are, can people use Paystand, obviously in America, but can they use it outside of America as well? Or how does that kind of work? Yeah, so our core business today is in the US, um, but we service, because we service large companies, those are global companies. So it's not uncommon for us to have, you know, a US national dom domiciled company, but have many subsidiaries in Europe or Canada or Latin America. And so um, we generally service companies over those contexts. Um, we're we're really really excited about cross border. Um, we haven't have anything to announce yet, but it's an area you can kind of watch where our business evolves. Because, you know, if you look today in the U.S. and and generally mature markets in general, financial services is is in one case broken, but on the other case it's relatively mature. Um, but in other parts of the world, financial services is not only broken, but they basically don't exist. Um, so the, the, the fact that businesses are highly underbanked in everywhere from Latin America to Africa to parts of Asia, um, and yet we live in a global world where they're all part of the supply chain. Um, this is where we're particularly excited about things like blockchain and decentralized finance because it's a great enabler for that. It sort of opens up and democratizes the economic systems and the concept of money to the whole world. Totally. No, that that's actually really fascinating because just like I live in Canada myself and just doing work for American companies sometimes and getting paid can take months, really, sometimes just because of how... I, I know you can just based on how things just moving money across borders is it sounds so simple, but it's actually really challenging, like you just mentioned. Yeah, and, and and it's challenging for two reasons. One is the financial infrastructure itself was predominantly built before the internet. So right. uh, both in the US and in Canada and in most places. And so, you know, that, that that's kind of duct tape and bailing wire plumbing. Um, and so, so in general, the infrastructure itself is not caught up, which is right. which is crazy even in 2022. Um, and then, so so you have a, a systemic problem there, and then you also have a systemic problem again around the, the business model because all of the folks that are in the value chain when you move money across the borders, again, they're all incentivized to put their hand in the cookie jar, and and so what that means is you end up having. Um, not only speed problems because the systems don't talk to each other, they're not global, they're not internet enabled, they're not sort of all these things. Um, but you also have this problem where, okay, well, the, the bank's going to charge a wire fee on both sides, so that costs money. They've got to kind of manually intervene in most cases. Uh, then there's FX fees, so you know you have sort of different 
um, exchange rates, and then you have, you know, sort of input and output fees. And so kind of all of this stacks up to a system that, you know, doesn't look like the internet. The internet's great, um, you know, promise was it was this democratizing force so we could send email or write a tweet to anyone in the world for free because it's all just dematerialized into software. That is not how financial services work. And when you look at it across the borders, that hole becomes even glaringly larger. So no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I think it makes sense to probably cover as somebody that owns crypto, I think it makes sense to just say that before I ask my question is blockchain and crypto get lumped in my opinion as the same thing to a lot of people i i know they're not but how, like and if you obviously if you've read any news on crypto in the last couple of years it's been a lot of kind of doom and gloom and that it's just like a it's nothing or or whatever right and like i said yeah. i own some so i i don't really believe what i've been reading but i think it makes sense for you to cover what is like how do how do these companies leverage the blockchain and put trust in the blockchain as well as crypto going forward because it's not getting great publicity right now both things i would uh, say yeah yeah i agree um you know i think the context i have is as someone who grew up right at the commercialization of the internet um right you know it it's actually really exciting because it feels the same way. So, you know, when I entered undergrad as an engineer, you know, you didn't quite know what the internet was going to be, but you certainly knew it was going to be something. It was a heck sure. of a lot controversial at the time. And so, you know, I've been in the blockchain, Bitcoin, crypto ecosystem for over a decade now. Um, and it's very, very similar to how this stuff felt in the, in the internet in the nineties, um, which is super, super exciting, but you have to Kind of separate out the signal from the noise and there's a lot a lot of noise so here's a couple thoughts um you know things like digital assets um, are here to stay and they will change financial services i can talk about why you know sort of bitcoin as a store of value is a very very interesting concept now seeing it you know 12 years in sure. um, but think of that as kind of like the internet I spend my world um my day job on the business side of the house and talking to fairly um conservative enterprise companies and the way i talk to them about blockchain which is the enabling infrastructure under some of these new financial products um the way you can think about blockchain is blockchain is the new cloud and um uh, what, what enterprises understand is you know when the internet became a consumer revolution in the 90s a lot of businesses tried to figure out well how do i engage in that and what happened was um, you know, in the late 90s and the 2000s, a couple of really innovative companies like Salesforce and Oracle NetSuite said, hey, the way you can think about the Internet for you as a business is it's enabling infrastructure. And um, and so they said there was a CRM software, but you'd have it on premise and you have to buy the box software and you have to, you know, uh, maintain it and all of these things. Um, or we can deliver it over the Internet. Um, and it can be basically better, cheaper, faster software for you. That's what you care about as a company. And that means your, your business is ultimately more efficient. And, you know, at the time for folks, cloud was kind of this ominous thing. And in the 2000s, a lot of folks, there was all this conversation around, will companies, you know, put their data in the cloud? You know, um, will companies trust the cloud? All of this stuff. 
Now, you know, we know 20 years later, like the cloud is so table stakes, like you don't, there's no software that's not cloud, like literally all software in the business context is SaaS software in the cloud. Um, and so it took, you know, a decade and a half, but it's now like the foregone conclusion. What I would say is blockchain, which is enabling technology that changes how we think about um, moving financial services and moving data around is a very, very similar evolution where today it feels like, will companies put their information on it? How will it get used? Um, and what I would say is the technology innovation is real. It's world changing. It's never been invented before you know, 20 years ago. Um, and it does enable us to think about creating better, cheaper, faster, more efficient things, particularly in financial services. That's its first main, main use case. Um, but in other areas as well, from supply chain to insurance, to education, to all, all of these amazing things. Um, and so the best companies today bet on cloud 15 years ago, um, and they're now the leaders of their space. And so what I'd say is for you as a company, um, you want to think about, invest in, and bet on in early ways uh, blockchain today because blockchain will be the new cloud and it will be the new commodity in a decade from now. Oh, I, I think that's that's really good advice. The other thing that I think we should touch on quickly as well is how does Web3 play into this? And in in talking to some of these big and large enterprises, how are they adopting or thinking about web three and maybe just before you answer that what is web three to you i guess and what does that mean for for the listener they don't know what it is yeah um web three means a lot of things to a lot of people what i would say is web three almost goes back to um a, the full realization of what we wanted web one to be and um so the promise of the internet was a completely open internet um and you know open beats closed and you know back in the 90s there was things like aol and CompuServe, these walled gardens of of what you might consider as mini internets but the open internet beat them um what happened in web 2 was to create great user experiences um, we ended up centralizing a lot of the internet so whether that's on social media whether that's in big companies um, and they became these sort of walled gardens again Web3 is this notion which is enabled through blockchain um, where how do we decentralize and open up a lot of what we know the web to be. So whether that's um, you know everything from communication to social media to protocols um, on how businesses operate, Web3 is a new way for us to be able to interoperate in an open kind of way. Um, and that's really exciting because it will change how industries operate. Um, we know of privacy concerns today. We know of concerns around, you know, kicking people off platforms, um, you know. And so Web3 is a way to basically us all work together um, to create a system where there's great interfaces like Web2, but are built in a more open, decentralized way. And that's really what the blockchain does um, as a technology enablement. No, yeah, interesting. So I, I'm curious then, what about does the metaverse play into any of the stuff that you or any of the big enterprises that you deal with, are they thinking about that yet or is it still too kind of early for them? Well, you know, I'll give you 
um, an example of how Web3, which has a lot of hype, right? Just like Web1 had a lot of hype. Sure. Uh, there's there's a kernel of interesting things. So so NFTs are an example of something that's got a lot of hype. And, and now, you know, there's been a shakedown in the market as it should. Um, but let me give you an example of why Web3 NFTs are interesting. So there's an economic component to an NFT that I think gets missed. Like people think about it as just a JPEG that people spend a lot of money around, um, you know, as some ape that you put on your profile. One of the big things when I talk about more interoperability is, um, you know, how do you transfer ownership but till still participate in an economy? So you know, maybe the example would be in in the 50s or 60s when Marvel Comics started, you know, it was a very niche thing, right? Um, and if yeah. you had a comic book, um, you know, you might be this great Spider-Man lover, um, but maybe only a handful of people love Spider-Man, but you wanted to really, really tell people about Spider-Man. Um, and so, you know, everywhere you went, you said, hey, I love Spider-Man and um, I've got the first Spider-Man comic and I'm going to trade it for you. Um, after you trade that first Spider-Man comic, it's kind of left your hands. And while you could be an evangelist, you've no longer participated sort of in the evangelism at the economic level. Um, and so now we know, you know, Disney is this giant juggernaut that's bought Marvel and Spider-Man is this, you know, sort of huge cultural icon. Um, and it's clearly worth a lot of money. Um, what would happen if those first evangelists were able to participate in the economic value creation after they traded that first comic? So that comic then now exchanges hands a hundred times. You still talk about how cool Spider-Man was. You're participating in the economic outcome of the tribe of interest that you care about. Okay. So, so sure. that kind of thing does not exist before NFTs. NFTs are a way for us to have shared interests, shared values with an economic sort of um, engine behind it that has more participatory. Um, now that hasn't been fully explored yet in deep levels, but folks like NBA are doing it with top shots, um, you know, around trading cards and things like that. Um, other brands are using it. Um, so, so there are very, very interesting ways where digital commodities that we have shared interests around that brands participate in now become bottom up where it's both the brand, think about you know Marvel in this case, and the evangelist now super involved together. Um, that's an area where Web3 again is sort of a, a playing field leveler because it allows instead of companies being all top down, um, uh, the economies to be actually built bottoms up, which is really, really interesting. It's never happened in history. Oh, that yeah, it's it's totally fascinating. I, I always like covering NFTs on the show because I think we're just kind of scratching the surface on it. There's a there's some people really doing some interesting things. Like I know a gaming company is ba basically making you as the NFT, and as you compete, and if you lose, they kill off your NFT. And it's kind of an interesting idea around just different. So I, I'm really curious to see how that plays out as well, right? And because a lot of people just think like, yeah, it's a, just a JPEG. It's like, no, there's a lot more that will come out in the coming years and and some really good use cases for that stuff. Yeah, and, it, and it's blurring the lines too. So this is where like block, blockchain on the enterprise side and Web3 on the consumer side start interacting. So um, on the enterprise side, so one area of blockchain that's very interesting to me that that that's still early, um, but is this notion of, uh, property ownership. So, so property ownership is a huge way that people sort of um, 
uh, are able to, to jump sort of the economic ladder. And in a lot of emerging countries, um, you know, things like title records are actually very, very difficult and fraught with fraud. Um, so, so you actually might no, not know who owns what. Um, and then if there's sort of regime change, um, you know, your sort of ownership records can completely get wiped out. And, you know, um, there's all kinds of sort of bad things that happen in these systems um, because they're not digital. They're not kind of connected to your identity. And so um, right. they're just really, really fraught with problems. Blockchain, um, because it has a sort of immutable record that cannot be changed, um, it's this sort of assertion forever. Um, you know, it is a really, really good use case for hey, property, land, title, ownership, and records around that. Um, and so in emerging markets, I think, you know, there's a lot of really interesting work being done around it. Um, so that's on the enterprise side. On the consumer side, you know, a friend of mine is running um, a gaming company where, um, you know, it's this big open world and it's a space company and you can basically get, you know, land in Mars and places like that. Um, that's cool. And so on the consumer side with Web3, you're buying an NFT, which is a piece of the digital version of Mars in that game, and you're actually buying land ownership there. Um, and so the NFT is your representation of that land ownership. And wherever you go across the open world, you always have it. Um, and so the consumer side is using an NFT for that case um, is for digital land ownership in this game. Right. And then the enterprise side is using the blockchain as a sort of stamping record with the government um, of actual ownership you have. Again, those are two areas where both the digital world, the, you might call the meta world and the actual world can intersect. And today, those things only exist outside of the blockchain in centralized ways in paper. So outside of the blockchain, that's a file somewhere in the government on the enterprise side. And then outside of Web3, that would be some database entry that some you know, video game company owns forever and could change, right? So in both cases, you know, the blockchain is kind of rethinking that. Um, so the ownership you have, whether physical or digital, um, you know, is sort of impermeable. Fascinating. No, interesting. So I want to circle back to Paystand again um, as we're kind of coming to the end of the show. I want to talk about some of the integrations and um, some of the APIs because I think any developers listening that would want to potentially integrate uh, into their current software and or company. Yeah, so um, so Paystand's core business, we spend a lot of time with the big cloud system. So we work okay. with very closely with um you know the big erp so think oracle netsuite sage intact microsoft dynamics salesforce etc um and and so most of these big companies it's part of the thesis of this the business is they've invested in cloud like all their systems are digital um right. but then their money part which is like the lifeblood of the business is not and that's like this just <laughs> weird thing um and so we often talk to the cfo who who usually is our customer and say, look, you've invested in making, you know, in a post-COVID economy, like your whole business automated and people can work remote and all this other stuff. But if you have to like send people in to go collect checks, that's a problem. Um, and so, so we have really close partnerships with those folks and we tend to work with companies that are already invested there. What I'm excited about in the developer community is, so our core blockchain, which runs our core network, we run over $4 billion in payment volume on the blockchain. We're probably the largest uh, commercial blockchain on the planet today. Um, 
And all of that works in dollars and cents, um, and it's done in a highly scalable fashion. So it's not a prototype, it's not an idea in the lab, it's not a white paper, but it's at scale. Um, it's pegged to um, you know, the Ethereum public chain with high availability on the private chain. Um, and so we've solved a lot of really interesting problems there. And so one of the things we've done is we've given back to the community where um, developers can use our version of highly available chain scaling for the enterprise in their own projects. So oh, cool. you know, we're not going to go and build that um, you know, property title management system for emerging markets. Um, but the way we've scaled our payment system can be applied to that use case. And so we give developers um, you know, access to the chain and the protocol and APIs to be able to kind of build what we think are next gen, you know, enterprise blockchain type services in a totally open decentralized way, um, because we think it's bigger than Paystand what we're trying to accomplish. We think that's the magic of blockchain and DeFi and decentralization is we can all build open software that um, interacts, you know, and hopefully that makes um, the systems a little more fair. So we're, we're excited. We've got a bunch of developers who are building really cool things on it. And um, we're happy to talk to other folks who um, have great ideas that we can just, you know, help you go do something really cool. So fascinating. Okay, very cool. So I, I'm curious, did you bootstrap the company? Did you raise some money? Walk us through that. Yeah, you know, so um, I've been doing startups for 20 years now. I've been, I've done it in bootstrapped environments, um, which I learned a lot from. I've done it in, you know, sort of high financial service environments like New York. And then I've been in Silicon Valley for the last uh, 12 years now. And I think actually you want a little bit of all of that when you have a really ambitious project. So um, the way this early company started was you know, we basically self-funded the business until we got to the first customers. Because one of the things I observed was, and this is way back, so in 2013, when we started developing the idea on the napkin, it was really like the first hype cycle of crypto and blockchain. Right. And what I saw then, and it's crazy that this is still true nine years later, um, Everybody was talking about this cool tech, but nobody was building anything of like real value. Um, yeah. So I was really just a, afraid or leery of going and raising a bunch of money with an idea, um, even though maybe we could have. And so I just wanted to go get customers and prove real value first. Um, and so we went the first year basically self-funded. Um, and, you know, we brought in a handful of customers, showed that the payment infrastructure was just better, right? If you can move money, you know, instantly and automatically without fees, that's great. Um, and then from there, we went out to um, investors and, you know, we've, we've chosen investors who, you know, are really aligned with our vision. So, um, you know, the first investors in PayPal and Plaid and these sort of big financial you know, um, iconic companies now are, are, you know, part of our journey, which we've been really blessed. And so, you know, today we've raised, I don't know, um, almost $90 million in venture capital wow. money. Um, Congrats, man. That's huge. Well, obviously yeah. that's huge. <laughs> I don't need to yeah, say that. Been blessed. Um, you know, but at the same time, we've always stayed true to, you know, we as a company, we've, we've always been, and I think this has changed in the last couple of years when the market was really hot, the startup market was hot we've always just been indexing on building a global world changing iconic enduring company that hopefully one day is public and so 
um, I was less concerned with sort of the hype cycle. So we didn't raise money to raise money and, you know, just post unicorn valuations. But for us, it was just, you know, we've been one of the fastest growing companies in the world. We've been on the Inc. 500, I don't know, three or four times in a row now. We've been top 10 uh, fastest growing in Silicon Valley, I think the last two years. Um, and and so we're, we're, we're using that money to reinvest in the growth of the company, but the company actually economically is fundamentally sound. Um, and so we wouldn't need to raise capital. The core business can run, you know, just as it is today um, because, you know, we're creating real value for customers. And so um, VC is great um, as a growth and enablement vehicle, but you really want to create sort of enduring companies. And that's kind of been part of the DNA of the company for, for the beginning. So. No, very cool, man. Uh, that's, that's awesome. I, I'm curious because you've been in this, obviously been an entrepreneur for a long time now, you teach, you mentor, you've done all this stuff. What advice would you want to give to people listening as we close out the show? Yeah, I think um, value creation really matters. And, 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 and I would just go back to the most simple things. So um, if you're starting a company, there's really only two things that matter, um, you know, working directly with the customer and you know, building and shipping product. And even, you know, our company now is at, at a reasonable scale will be, I don't know, 500 employees this year. Wow, um, I think we're servicing uh, 350,000 businesses on our network. So wow. um, we're, we're at a nice level of scale, but at the end of the day, like all of the extra stuff, like, you know, how do you change, how do you change the customer? Um, so you make their lives better. And if you do that, the businesses ultimately work out. And so all this technology innovation, I'm fundamentally a technologist, um, but it's got to reach the customer. And so, you know, the model I think about is a bunch of my friends in the late nineties, when I was doing, you know, computer science, uh, they all dropped out of school and VCs gave them a bunch of money, um, to go start, you know, some random dot-com company and nearly all of them flamed out. Um, one of my friends, though, went to go work for Amazon, and the Amazon was tiny at the time. And I was thinking, boy, for all the opportunity, um, this guy's going to go work for a bookstore, um, which seemed kind of crazy. Um, but, you know, he ended up being one of the most successful out of our cohort um, because, you know, he was whatever, I don't know, one of the first hundred employees there. And what I realized was to get to your vision, you really have to succeed at one thing really well for us to prove value. So Amazon had to first prove, you know, before all this conquering e-commerce, they just had to prove that the bookstore online was better, cheaper, and more efficient than, you know, shipping books everywhere physically at Barnes and Noble or whatever. And they did that really, really well. So for all the internet hype, they had to do that really, really well. And so the customers had to delight there. And only then could they so to prove their next, you know, horizon, which was A to Z, you know, this notion that if I take that and then I apply it to all commerce, and then eventually they can do AWS, right? Which is to power the commerce of the internet. Um, but you have to build your way there to do these enduring things. And so I think, you know, the stuff I'm excited about, you know, whether it's a blockchain or DeFi or crypto, um, I, I think the thing, what I wanna see is more enduring companies be built focused on you know the value first um and and do a little bit more show and a little less tell so no i i think that's really good advice but sadly we're out of time so how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself 
PayStand and any other links you want to mention? Yeah. So, so thanks for having me on, Kevin. It's always um, awesome to talk to you and the listeners. Um, so first, if you're interested in, in B2B payments, if you're you know company growing fast and want to get your money faster, cheaper, and more efficiently, um, you can just go to paystand.com. Um, it's just like it sounds, paystand.com. Um, and then if you want to follow me and learn a little bit more about blockchain and DeFi and sort of where the fintech industry is going, um, you can find me at Jeremy Almond on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, and then look for an upcoming blog series that uh, myself and uh, VC co-hosts are going to do. I'm really unearthing what DeFi means for our economy. So I'm excited about that coming up too. So, Very cool. Well, Jeremy, I really appreciate you taking the time under your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day, man. Killer, Kevin. Appreciate it, man. Thank have you. Good day. You too. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community. Sign up for our newsletter or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.